0: Welcome back to Leadership Legacy and Love, and man, I'm I'm excited to do this episode. I wasn't even planning to do this episode; it didn't really occur to me. And my life has just been so rich, and I don't mean that in terms of of money, but I mean that in terms of experience and opportunity and exposure. I'm so grateful to my my mother Anne and my father Gene and my my uncles, my aunts, my grandparents. I've just been so exposed because of the work and the success they've had to so many wonderful things, wonderful people and wonderful possibilities. And I still sometimes look back at the, 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 the my adult life and think about the possibilities and in the, in the path I could have gone. And so in this episode, I'm doing a, a special dedication to a show um, that recently celebrated 20 years and had a special, um, a one hour special, which which I enjoyed. Um, The show is called Pardon the Interruption. If those of you who are sports fans who follow um, ESPN um, here in the States or abroad, you might know uh, 530 on the East Coast pretty much every day, with some exceptions, for the last 20 years has been a show by two Washington Post, formerly Washington Post columnists. That's how it started. They were columnists, sports columnists, uh, Tony Kornheiser and Michael Wilbon. I've had the chance to meet and interact with both of them. And dare I say I had the chance to actually work with one of them. Now, I'm going to tell the story um, and tell the truth, the shame, the devil, put it in context because I was a kid. Um, But this story has to go back for me. And if you watch a documentary, this may be a good companion follow-up piece. Maybe not. But to the Washington Post and my dad's time at the Washington Post. And um, for those of you who don't know my father's story, Gene Fugit. he was a tight end for the Dallas Cowboys, was one of the first modern-day free agents, his last game for the Dallas Cowboys was in Super Bowl X. I think it was January of 1976. And he was a free agent. And he wanted to go to law school at night, and Dallas didn't have a night program. And he went from being the lowest-paid starting tight end to the highest-paid starting tight end. But this didn't happen by accident. It happened because um, the Washington Post, um, in part, Hired my father that summer of 1976 to work in Washington, D.C. as a reporter, which, of course, is very unique. My father, being African-American an athlete, and I think maybe being 24, 25 years old at the time, um, was was asked to be a reporter. Now he had written. Um, he was uh, editor, I think assistant editor, editor of his college newspaper in Amherst College in Massachusetts and had written um, some, I think, in Dallas and had a radio show and c- continued that. As part of his journey and his career during his time in Dallas and and had a show called Flight Time and uh, a new time joiner back in the day apparently and and all that stuff. Um, and then came here and um, George Allen, Hall of Famer, coach of the Redskins at the time, the name of the team was the Redskins, was uh, friends with the Graham family and the editors of The Washington Post. And we actually have been able to confirm on uh, video that in fact, my father, was hired, um, in part to get him here to D.C. so that the Washington Redskins, then as they were known, now the Washington Football Team, could hire could could sign uh, my father. And there was a, um, and it, it, they succeeded. So I found the audio from uh, October of 2013. Uh, this is my father. I was standing right there recording it on my phone. Um, it's this video, but this is the audio. With um, Ben Bradley, who was then the editor of the Post. This is almost a year to the day before he passed. May he rest in peace. The great Ben Bradley of the Washington Post and his wife, Sally Quinn. And you'll hear my father ask him, Did he in fact, um, was he in fact put up to signing, to hiring my father in the Post that summer of 1976 so that George Allen could sign him? And you'll hear him at the end emphatically answer, Yes. Amazing. And they invited me to come an intern
1: for the Washington Post back in 1976, and I later signed with the Redskins. Later, and he that would, he wouldn't tell me whether George Allen or Ervanda Williams put him up to it. And he just laughed. And I said, I probably know who throat is before I know. Yes, ma'am. I remember that. So. so I just want
0: him to tell me when paid, and he would start um, at the Metro desk, right? Not sports. And he covered Prince George's County government. Prince George's County, for those of you who don't know, was a suburb of Washington D.C. A suburb, suburban county uh, surrounding the eastern half of Washington uh, D.C. And he, you know, would go out to Upper Marlboro, the county seat, and county, and cover the government and um, in, in county affairs and crime and all that stuff. Right. Um, eventually, he would also, I think, for one year, he covered the Washington Bullets and sports and 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 did that as well but um he was here and it was a big press conference where himself calvin hill who was a running back who's the father of grant hill many of you who are younger might know who grant hill is a uh, retired nba player and now director of usa basketball and then uh the the great diesel uh washington r- running back um, um john riggins who was my father's locker mate all were signed on the same day it was a big public press conference and again this was the beginning of modern day free agency 1976 so my father continued to work for the post and i would later years find out that um, there was a young intern and this is featured in the documentary about pardon interruption pti for short and i refer to it as pti going forward there was a guy that came in some young kid black kid from northwestern named michael wilbon who came in as an intern and eventually would be hired and i would have the chance to talk to mr wilbon who gave a speech at my alma mater georgetown prep probably about 10 or 12 years ago and i went And spoke to, uh, had a chance to spend a a few moments, probably five or 10 minutes after his speech with him. And he had just had a heart attack and he was moving kind of slow at that time. But he took the time as we walked through the school just to talk to me and share with me. And he said that I was a cub reporter. I never forget, he, he grabbed me and looked me in the eye and said, your dad, I wouldn't be here if it wasn't for your dad. And dad, if you listen to this, I don't have ever told you this story. Maybe I did. And you, And If I did, you probably just blew it off. But I'll never forget. He said, if it wasn't for your dad, I wouldn't be here because when I got to the post, I was, you know, he was the only black reporter I saw around, really. And what he, he told me, Mike, do this. Mike, do that. Wilbon, do this. Wilbon, do that. And everything he told me to do was the right thing to do. And he told me what I needed to do. And I did it. And it always was the right thing. And it worked. And so I, he stuck and stayed there. So. And to hear that for me was was amazing, right? And I had met Mike backstage. I have a picture with Mike, um, which I probably will share on social media when I promote this episode. Um, when I met had Mike, met Mike, I think five or six years before this conversation, right? Where I had met him, and just he was just one of my heroes because I grew up in Silver Spring, Maryland, with the Washington Post, and I would get a quarter, and I'm ashamed to say that there were some days, and I actually did get in trouble for this where um we me and some of my friends knew how to bust open the newspaper machines and take the newspapers. So I might owe the Washington Post a few dollars. I think the papers were a quarter back then. And sometimes we did it for fun. Sometimes we did it because we didn't want did have the money. And on certain days, we would certainly wanted to read the sports section. I remember March Madness being a time if the, if the Redskins were doing well, we wanted to read the sports section and, and, and we would get a paper or two or three <laughs> sometimes. And one day, a parent saw us and told our teachers when we got in trouble at school for it. And of course, we stopped that behavior on the way home from school. But the Washington Post and Michael Wilbon and Tony Kornheiser and these guys were must reads. And so for us to be able to read um these newspapers and and these became our heroes in terms of talking about the washington football team at the time which was a championship super bowl contending team and to be able to follow high school basketball which for us in mrs middle school you know we all wanted to be high school superstar basketball players and i aspired to be that didn't work out but i had friends who went on and did that so you wanted to see the high school sports as well and all the big kids who you knew and their brothers you know you know that was the thing so But we always read Kornheiser and Wilbon, and and those were staples in my upbringing from middle school through high school. And so it's just amazing to hear Michael Wilbon, one of my heroes, say that to me at that time. This is probably about 10 or 11 years ago, maybe even a little more at Georgetown Prep. So around that same time, back in about 92, 91, 92, um, sports radio became a booming enterprise. Now, of course, this is perhaps one element they did leave out of the documentary, the role of sports radio. And and I don't know the history entirely well, but sports talk radio, most people in radio historically, and this is probably into the 70s, 80s, and into early 90s, did not think it would work. And um, the fan, WFAN, had been successful in New York. And people said, okay, well, it's New York. They could support a 24-hour station that, you know, or at least during the 18 prime hours of the day, all they did was talk sports most people did not believe it would work right so to start a sports talk station it was uh you know zero a.m 570 i think it was in 92 i think it was fall of 92 um they started and my father gene fugit had the drive time nightly show i think monday through friday with ira melman and they you know had guests and they talked and I think they were either preceded or followed by Ken Beatrice, who had been uh, who had had a long-standing sports talk show. But of course, the station, the format of the station he was on was not completely sports. So they had Ken Beatrice and there were a lot of people from a previous generation who were fans of Ken. Some people gave Ken a hard time. And I think he since passed away. A very lovely man who I did have the chance to to also meet. I wouldn't say I worked with him, but I did meet. And many times my father i and my parents were divorced. You know my story a little bit from this podcast. If you've listened, this is leadership, legacy and love. So, this is definitely a legacy episode, right? So, my father would pick me up, and sometimes he'd have my cousin with me. He'd come from Baltimore, right? He would do his commute every day to this studio in Rockville, Maryland, on Rockville Pike, right? And we would order, we would go to the studio and we'd hang out, and they would do the show. And I was on air at least once or twice if there's ever any audio footage or video, video, yeah, audio, rather um of me i know there were some weeks where i got to make picks and uh, who was going to win and my, my my father and ira were nice enough to put the mic in my face and let me talk but i'm being at the studio and hanging out and being around it and between segments and co- during commercials my dad would come out and we'd talk and hang out i usually have the baseball game whatever baseball game was being on or a basketball game whatever was on friday night sports was on the tv and what they would call the bullpen which is basically a bunch of office cubicles outside of the studios There's a production studio and there's a recording studio right there I remember it very, very vividly. And I'll explain a little bit more why I remember that space so well in a minute. And we'd order this amazing pizza. I remember it's amazing. I don't know where it was from. And it's this amazing deep dish pizza that would come. And I would eat eat the pizza. My cousin might be there. I remember him coming a couple of times and we'd eat the pizza. And it was just a wonderful experience. And of course, my uncle um, would get sick and pass away. And so my father, being on, Zero, five, seven, I had one of my favorite high school teachers and basketball coaches would always you know tease me with my dad's no drop because you know, you know i remember would say wtm and then and they would say the phone number 3019 whatever and then my dad would say 0570 that was their, that was their thing to, to call in if you wanted to be a guest on the show my dad would always say 0570 right so of course i remember the joke but it was true because my dad would say that line right and And I remember my dad telling me a lot about, you know, they were going to really promote him and Ira Melman. They were going to be like my dad's picture was going to be on the side of buses. And all that came to a screeching heart, as so much of my life did, when my uncle got sick and then passed away. And my father eventually more or less moved to New York and then to Paris for a while. And that was a very challenging and transitional time for me being in eighth grade um, from St. Michael's going to ninth grade at Georgetown Prep. And again, I've touched a little bit on that in my Georgetown Prep podcast that that very difficult year of 1993 was you know very difficult for me but nonetheless had that you know had that experience there so fast forward to my senior year at Georgetown Prep now you know now mind you you know I'm, I'm a senior and I you know I'm on my way out the door I'm gonna graduate it's great made it through didn't have you know had challenges as I've talked about earlier but um, you know on the, uh, can see the other side and there's this opportunity as a program where if your grades are good enough, you could intern every day and basically skip almost all of your classes except for AP. So I only had one AP class, and that's AP Government. I actually really, really, really enjoyed the class. Um, the professor, I think Mr. Majenski, uh recently passed away, may he rest in peace, was the profe- was the teacher of that class. I think he was a college counselor for many years afterwards. I think he did college counseling when I was there as well. Might even been my college counselor. I don't have the best memory of that part. But... So I was able somehow to get all my teachers to agree I had done well enough in school that year. My senior year at prep was by far my best academic year, most successful academic year. Right. So I got all my teachers to sign up. I didn't have to go to all these classes any longer for the last three months, the fourth quarter year. I had this one big major English project I had to finish. I had to meet with that teacher a few times to get what I need to finish that. And then I had to go to my AP government class. And that was it. I was basically gonna get like a A or B or whatever it was, like a, a passing grade. I was gonna graduate. I didn't care the grade. I was already in the college at that point, right? I think. Um, uh, all those all used to, yeah, I was already in the college. I think I already knew I was going to Trinity. And so I just wanted to like, yeah, I was like I saw the I saw the light in the tunnel. And so I called my dad and he told me to call, and I can't remember the guy's name, um, who was who was the the manager over there, and they said he'd love to have me. So I, I get to roll up over there, and I'm re- reporting for uh, Rich Cook, Richie Cook, and I don't know um, wherever became of of, uh, of Richie Cook. But there were some great guys there, and they, you know, they they took um, you know good care of me. I remember balking tapes, you know, which is basically there's they this, this, this used to use cassette these carts, these blue carts that were taped. And they were used for the commercials or for different drops, you know, promoting the next, promoting shows, different things. So I had to balk them, that erase them so they could reuse them. So I remember doing that. You know, there's always coffee and bagels and juice most days, you know, most mornings. So I would go to my government class, the first class of the day. And so by 10, 9, 30, 10 o'clock every day, I was at the radio station. And this is from late March through May. So I would do that and I'd hang out the radio station. Um, i might i would come back down sometimes for lunch and hang out in the lunchroom (laughs) at at prep and then go back um i think some days i didn't even bother to go back for lunch and just hung out because there was lunch at the radio station i just enjoyed being around the radio station because all we're doing is talking sports all day and i would leave oftentimes to go back i was captain of the uh of the uh, track team for shot put so i would leave And go back to campus to throw the shot put. Now, you know, at the time, I think in the morning was the Tony Kornheiser show. I'll never forget this. There's two things I never forget. One is the first week I was there, there was this frumpy uh, white guy, probably 30 years old, glasses. Um, He was a producer for Tony Kornheiser show. (laughs) And um, he seemed like he was always kind of frazzled. Like Tony would say stuff and he would just do would jump and be like nervous and like running around trying to figure out how to make tony happy and i remember tony being somewhat new andy poland was also there um another great guy who was on radio at that station for many years to follow um scotty lynn was there scotty lynn if you ever listen to this thank you i i regret one of my biggest regrets is not staying in touch with all the people i met there and even following up on potentially working at the station and pursuing um a career in in that space i think i could have been pretty good at it um and so um, but again, two things stood out. One is that producer was there one week, and I remember he was there on a Monday. I remember coming back on like the a, a Tuesday, my second week there, and finding out said, like, "Where is I forget his name? Where is what's his name?" <laughs> and he said, "Oh, Tony fired him." <laughs> so Tony had fired this producer. So I learned a very valuable lesson. So I was like, <laughs> I was like, I could tell the dude always seemed like a step behind what tony wanted or for whatever reason i didn't i even know everything i wasn't always i wasn't in the studio i'd be sitting oftentimes i would sit in the engineering booth where i could hear the show and then i could watch through the glass and then the commercials would come on and the producer would run in there and talk to tony and i would just sit there and observe the observe the interaction i wasn't going in there right not the first not the second week and i don't think i ever went in there with tony like i never went there with tony and andy Andy poland just just didn't do it but i sat scotland i think was producing there i sat in there with him and man and rich richie cook was there and um and dan's the other guy dan he ended up going over to detroit he does detroit lions football he was there a lot of times he had a show i'm blanking on his last name forgive me this is 1997 and so that's the that's the that's the that's the first thing i remember is learning that that dude was a step behind he couldn't keep pace tony asked him right so this tony was tough right and so the year before i had run for student government president which is called president of the yard at georgetown prep and i lost by 5 votes. And I wrote an article not making excuses for why I lost, but also understanding that I, I had directly heard and had friends who overheard very racist things said during the course of my campaign that you know make sure you vote European and and really some ugly things of that nature that led me to believe that race with a 5 vote margin had played a factor and that there were some kids who refused to vote for me because I was a black american uh, I'm black american, right? So I written an article and I, you know, my mom had gone to work and made cop, made, you know, copies of it. It was in the school newspaper the end of the previous year and, and handed some out. I ha- I still have some somewhere to this day. And I gave one to Tony Kornheimer. This is probably weeks later. This is probably, you know, April, May at this point. I remember handing it to Tony, and explaining it to him, and handing it to him and walking away. Just like, didn't think he'd ever read it, didn't think he'd cared. I think my mom told me, why don't you give it to him and see what he says? So I remember Tony saying, wait a minute. And I turned back around, and said, "Tell me about this. Why did you write this?" And I was totally unprepared. And I remember answering the questions. And he looked. I think he asked me another question. It was a, it was somewhat of a brief interaction, but I I always left an impression with me at that age that wow, like he cared enough to like look at it and I'm sure scan it and read it, read at least the first few paragraphs pretty quickly. And before I could walk away, say, "Wait a minute, like tell me about this. Tell me why you wrote this." And I'm always will be grateful, Tony, if you're hearing this. I'm I'm always grateful for that moment. But that, that you saw me. Right. Because um, I thought was just some kid getting away and, you know, you you were intimidating. And you fired that producer. I don't know if you remember this. I was like, man. So um, that's that's the those are the two moments that that stick out to me is that, you know, when I wrote the article that article that Tony read it and asked me a few questions and followed up and said. And I remember him like nodding and saying, good job. Thanks for sharing this with me. I remember kind of like I might remember ending like on an up note. I remember that as well. It's probably a three or four minute conversation. And so, you know, those are the things that, that you know, stood out. So, you know, when I said I had a chance to work with Tony Kornheiser, <laughs> I was in another room balking tapes and eating bagels <laughs> and watching him work. The other big story around that time, many of you remember who follow sports was Fuzzy Zeller making the racist comments. And I think that's what also led me to share my article because race was a driving part for a number of weeks of the conversation that Tony was leading on the radio every day was fuzzy zeller made a kfc fried chicken you know comment about tiger woods who at the time was like coming out of nowhere and taking over the sport of golf again 1997 if you can remember tiger woods man like so that whole fuzzy zeller thing was was a hot topic and it got me saying well i i've addressed race in my environment and i wanted to share it with tony so i was grateful that he saw me in that moment i'm also grateful for doc walker I wish I had skipped track practice to be honest and sit in with Doc because Doc was like wanting to bring me in the studio and I would come in for like the first segment and if I remember the timing I often had to run and get to practice. I remember being late to practice and because I was I was the captain, my my uh, the, our coach Mr. Drozma. he also rest in peace would come on Fugi. I know you're down the street you got you got to be here on time Russell come on come on you're you're our captain I remember these one time. Getting a lecture about you're the captain, you can't be late to practice, right? I didn't want to run that that mile. We had to run to start every practice four laps around the track. <laughs> you guys wanted to go throw the shot with, but I had to show up and be a leader. And I was committed uh, to our our track team, who did have some pretty good athletes, some younger kids to be frank, who were good athletes, um, some jumpers and some sprinters and some some distance runners who were really amazing. And, and a couple of which I know, at least one of which I know, would want to have a solid college distance running career. Um, so. Anyway, I mean, that that was my experience at WTEM, which I think was still 570 or it maybe just become 980 and still 980. It's changed hands, it's been sold. I don't think there's anyone up until recently, there were a number of people there who I knew. Shout out to my Georgetown Prep classmate, Al Galdi, right, who... who Took my spot sometimes I think because I think the next summer he ended up interning there he went to university he, must, he was a key, he was the class speaker at our graduation George Chum Prep class in ninety seven um, I still don't believe the hype big Al if you ever listen to this uh, I remember that speech and then I know he went to Maryland and interned that summer I guess of ninety eight um, I actually ended up um, staying in Connecticut and working and then interning on Capitol Hill in summer of ninety nine Again, I wish I had stayed in touch and thought about coming back and staying in radio, but Al did the work and Al for 20 years until uh last earlier this year, I guess it was, was at 980 and now has a, a successful, one of the best uh football podcasts out in terms of Apple rankings. So you can check out the Al Galdi show every day. If you're a DMV sports fan, you're doing yourself a disservice if you're not listening. So shout out to Al Galdi. And then I've talked about Meeting Mike Wilbon and what he said. And then the last, you know, tie in to this story is my father and I had a concept. We had a radio show in Baltimore. I think it was 1370 a.m. was a Fox sports station uh, every I think it was Tuesday night for one hour back in 0809 for about 10 months. We had a show and uh you know sports i think fugit square gene fugit show was his show but i came on and we we talked sports for an hour and i got to meet jason lock four um who had a show um who's now big time cbs sports uh football analyst and um still has a local show um on uh, baltimore radio another jesuit educated guy loyola uh, baltimore guy and and got to meet him and Man, just had a great experience there so my father and i really took the concept right and we looked at pti getting back to pti we saw what pti had right the strength of pti that camaraderie that tony and mike have right and then we also really observed and understood the racial dynamic right that they had so my father and i really kind of taking off of that said we have an integer we have of course a camaraderie because we're father and son we have an integer inter- inter- intergenerational dynamic and we also have a dynamic. My father played pro sports and I've just been a fan my whole I grew up a, a fan. And so we talked about, you know, doing a show. So in 2009 on a snowy day, I think it was in January or December, we actually shot a 27, a full 30 minute TV pilot. I still have it. I have the sizzle reel.
2: The Athlete Sports Network presents Fugit Squared, an intergenerational dialogue on the world of sports featuring the father and son team of Gene and Russell Fugit. Gene is the player, all pro tight end.
1: If we go old school, we go back to RFK Stadium where we used to rock the house and win because I got memories of RFK when the Redskins were the Redskins.
2: Russell is the fan, a lifelong lover of sports and competition. DC stand up. I know as a native Washingtonian, we
0: love the fact that we have a stadium down in Chinatown. And as somebody who lived in that neighborhood not too long ago, I really enjoyed the revitalization that took place.
2: Gene is old school.
0: Old school.
1: The players used to get coached. They were prepared. They knew what they were doing. You see so many guys out of position today. Penalties even later in the season.
2: Russell is new school.
0: That you know I'm bleeding burgundy and gold. First we go down to Dallas have a fourth quarter lead and blow it. Then we go to Philadelphia, fourth quarter lead, blow it again.
2: Gene is the father, Russell is the son. Together, they'll cover sports from every angle. In this week's equation, Fugit Squared will examine how the prior week added up. In the NBA, Georgetown great Allen Iverson is back in Philly. New Jersey remains winless.
0: Oh, those poor New Jersey Nets. But I don't want to talk about the Nets. 0-18 right now. How about
1: AI back in Philly? I don't know. The Nets is interesting because now they got a really big reason to pay for LeBron James next year. <laughs> Meanwhile, AI, I'm just so happy uh, to see him back with the 76ers. How many times do you get a second chance?
0: I think we need James to pull out a, a blueprint and get LeBron in Jersey for his team. Otherwise, when they move to Brooklyn, I don't know what's going to happen. The Knicks and the Nets are going to look different next year. <laughs> That's for sure.
2: The Hero of the Week segment features an interview with someone from the world of sports. We're here with Tommy Polly,
0: former St. Louis Rams, Baltimore Ravens, and New Orleans Saints. Tell us, who do you like in the NFL this
2: season?
1: I like New England. You know, uh, Tom Brady's coming back off a of Major Angels. Um, they got Randy Moss, Bill Belichick. Um so uh, expect them to, to win. The
2: Fugit Forecast will take a look at the week ahead and provide previews, predictions and prognostications. A battle
1: between the big cats with the Lions at the Bengals. Now you got a lion going against a tiger. Get off this animal thing. I'm, t- I'm, I'm, I'm sorry no. man, it's, it's old school, you think thinking fundamentals <laughs> and, a, and a lion beats a tiger.
0: A lion beats a tiger? Not in Cincinnati, not this week. I'm going to take Ocho Cinco, Carson Palmer and the Cincinnati Bengals.
2: Father and son, old school and new school, the player and the fan, Fugit squared.
0: And um, we, I began trying to shop the show. I know, um, I guess Masson offered to sell us time. We talked to News Channel Eight about it. We, uh, I remember talking to a friend of my cousins who was working on, who was a PA, a production assistant on P.T.I. And PTI was moving their studios from one studio in DC to another. And I remember trying to figure out was it if it was what would it cost to get the 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 lease to the old studio so we could do our own show there. And, and I think you know my my ambition was certainly bigger than my budget. And I think eventually um I lacked courage and confidence to push through to get the show on the air. And again, something else I regret not going all the way with because i think it could have worked i still think the concept could work my father and i currently uh, have a podcast with a handful of listeners that we do every week and it really um you know keeps him and i in communication and keeps keeps him going and and who knows maybe one day we'll find a better platform it can be more focused on on producing it because my father is a wealth of knowledge about sports and has so many experiences and and i'm certainly a, a pretty knowledgeable fan having grown up around a professional athlete and someone who also covered the NBA like my father did and have had the chance to, to just understand and see sports and what it means to be an American pro athlete, um, you know, through my father's eyes. And of course my brother-in-law as well, being a professional baseball player, I, I understand it. I think as best as anyone ca- can, who has never stepped between the lines as a professional. Um, so but we really wanted to model our show in great in a great, in, in a lot of ways after P pti so in that way it was dreams unfulfilled so um to see you know pti make it 20 years i remember you know moving to dc i had a roommate from boston and i was had just gotten home from work or grad school and i was sitting on the couch watching it and my my roommate was like why do you watch these guys and he said wait a minute you're from dc these are your guys <laughs> and I'm like without explaining the whole backstory i'm like yeah these these are my guys tony and mike and i remember 2001 when they came on the air and i remember it being around that time it was right after 9-11 i was living in boston um i remember being excited like oh they gave they gave tony and mike a show um and it was unlike anything that was ever on television so i really enjoy having the chance to check it out and watching it and, and really you know have, have been a consistent viewer um often set my dvr now more or less i'll listen to the podcast to get it you know um and of course tony kornheiser has his podcast every every monday pretty much mike Wobon is one of his guests and it, you know covers whatever the last week usually nfl or nba which are my two favorite sports and um and it, i just get a chance to enjoy their banter and so from tony at you no know, 570 when he had the radio show and, and being able to observe and sit every day and watch him work it was a pleasure and then to be able to meet mike and have mike say that my dad really as the only black reporter there um sponsored and looked after mike wilbon and told him what to do is everything (laughs) everything your dad told me to do i did and it was worked it was the right thing it was great advice and so those things stick with me and so i felt you know a little bit of a personal connection as much as you can without really knowing these guys or being a part of anything it's like man like my life is crazy that's been able to intersect so so uniquely with, with, you know, what's, you know, one of the most successful TV projects of all time in in the PTI show and still going strong, right? Pardon the interruption on ESPN. Um, So I just wanted to share that, man, like leadership, legacy, and love. And again, I'm just blessed to have an amazing legacy. You know, I think just to clarify, Georgetown Prep was like, I could have walked from Georgetown Prep to the radio studio in high school, I, I drove my car cause so I could get back and forth for lunch or for track practice, right? And I, and I was just a little lazy too, to be honest but it, it did make sense to, to drive and I, I'd park illegally across the street at the White Flint Mall, but, which has now been knocked down. So, so much, so many things have changed, but man, I mean, it was, so just to be able to have the opportunity to go back to TEM after having been there as a, as a 12 and 13 year old with my dad on Friday nights, and uh, I remember living um, in downtown Silver Spring and tuning my dad on the radio and even calling him or he would call me during the commercial. We'd chat for a few minutes and he'd go back on the air. I remember that a couple of times as well. But listening to him at night on my radio in my bedroom as a kid um, when he first started, 0570 back in 90. I think, again, I think it was 90, uh, fall of 92, um, if not 91, but I think it was 92. But anyways, it's been amazing to kind of be a part of it, have an intersection. And, you know, my father's, you know, amazing uh, career, like a black forest Gump in terms of some of the people he's met and rooms he's been in, in uh historical people he's, he's uh, interacted with. Um, it's really quite amazing. So I hope you guys enjoyed this tribute. You know, if this is a, something that, you know, you're, you're not a sports fan or never watched PTI, don't get it. You know, you might want to skip this episode or might not have found this too engaging, but. Everyone, thank you for listening. Again, this is Leadership, Legacy, and Love. I'm Russell Fugit, and thank you for being on this journey with me. Follow me across social media at Russell Fugit. You can visit russellfugit.com for more information. Um, share and subscribe th- to this podcast. Leave me a review on Apple, five stars, hopefully, and some kind words, and we'll be back in this space in two weeks. God bless. I couldn't love you if I didn't love you. Thanks for listening.